somebody who is hated could be given new eyes. From Saul to Paul, you redeemed him in
not striving in my own strength. I'm striving in yours. I'm not trying to find my own way. I'm walking that course. Not thinking about my own plans. Thinking about yours. With you, my steps are safe. You motion me forward. Yeah, and Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. Would you please stand? We're going to beckon the spirit to come on into this place if you're ready for that.
can you see it? He's got your healing. Oh, just receive it. Receive the free. Can you hear it? Come on. Oh, can you feel it? Heaven is reaching. Oh, can you hear it? I got it speaking. Oh, can you see it? He's got your healing. Oh, just receive. Wouldn't be seated. Welcome, guys. Glad you came here to Capital City Christian Church this morning. For those who are joining us online, delighted that you're doing so. I hope this is a service of worship, that you know God is here. We're trying to do Him honor. Now, what we've got coming, just a couple of announcements very quickly. You should have a card like this somewhere around you. If not, there's going to be some out in the foyer. We have this little thing that we're doing this year called 12,000 Nudges. We want to give our community 1,000 nudges towards God every single month. And this month, it's these cards. Did you know people are more receptive to an invitation to church during Easter season than any other time of the year? And so if there are neighbors that you've got, colleagues that you have, um, maybe family members, that ordinarily might not come on, on a Sunday with you to church. Invite them to church over the Easter weekend. It can make a difference in their life forever. Pick up one of these cards. Make sure if you pick it up, give it to somebody. Just lay it on someone's desk at work or give it to a neighbor, do something like that. But it talks about the things that are coming up this week on Friday, 6.30, right here in the sanctuary. We're going to have a good Friday service. This one's going to be quite a bit different. It's going to be kind of a multi-sensory, interactive walk with Jesus from the time in the garden to the tomb. It's going to be kind of a somber service, but it's Friday when Jesus was crucified, and that's what we're going to focus on this Friday. Um, ordinarily, there are a couple, three hundred people here. I hope you make take advantage of that. I hope it'll be a pretty rich service. And then on Saturday, we've got our Easter extravaganza. That's for the little tykes uh, out there in the field. We're going to have a bunch of Easter egg hunts. We've got a lot of people here that are really annoyed because they had to stuff eggs over the last couple of weeks, and that's hard work. And so, uh, but we've got uh, thousands of eggs, I think. And so, make sure you bring your little guys and uh, invite your neighbors to participate in that. That's a pretty cool event. And then on Easter Sunday, uh, we're going to have a, you know, major worship services. We're going to have an 8 o'clock service. We're going to have a 9.30 service and 11 o'clock. We always say, um, come early, park far, bring one. Now, it's the 9.30 service, believe it or not, that usually is the one that's packed because all of the people from 11 o'clock go to 9.30 and all of the people, you know, that, it, that one tends to fill up. And so 
If you don't want to come early, come at your normal time, okay? But be sure to bring one and park far. That'll be really, really important. We want to fill this place. We want to do something really God-honoring this next week. Now, we've been doing this series, God Canceled, Fingerprints of God. We've been doing this series for several months now, since January. And basically what we're doing is, is there really a God? What's the evidence? Does believing in God make more sense than not believing in God? Now, last week during our worship planning meeting, I, I googled while we were there in the meeting, what would it take to get you to believe in God? And it took me to this site, Quora site, where the people giving all of their responses, what would it take to get me to believe in God? And I just started laughing. Found, Steve found me pretty disruptive in the worship planning meeting, right? And so finally he says, why don't you just read some of those responses to our church family on Sunday morning? I said, well, well cool, that'd be kind of fun. So here's the first answer. What would it take for you to believe in God's existence? Here's the first one. Maybe a little evidence would be a place to start. Then we could move to some comparisons between the scientific data and the belief, which means that the guy apparently never has actually looked for evidence because there's a boatload of it. Then he says, when we're convinced there is a God, we've got to determine which God, which God is responsible for the carnage inflicted in the name of God, the catastrophes that have befallen our world. Because God's certainly responsible for all of that, right? Which is kind of funny. Here's another one. He says, there's nothing that convinced me except actually meeting God. Well, give it time, dude. <laughs> and then he says, even then there is nothing that would convince me to worship such a being, which tells you what an open mind this guy has, right? This one's pretty funny. He says, either a little real reliable rational evidence or else huge monetary bribes. I love the integrity of that guy, right? He said it would take at least five million bucks to bribe me with money to give up my atheism, but you could give me for free if you can find some real, reliable, rational evidence that a God exists. Either one will do. Yeah, right. The idea behind the next one is pretty common. He says, I'll start believing when he, she, or it, <laughs> which is funny, answers the prayers of amputees because my kind of God wouldn't allow that kind of brokenness, would he? Now, this one deserves a chuckle. He says, oh, not much, just some so-called holy book written by people who weren't even there. You can tell by that comment, this guy's a careful historian, right? Filtered down through two millennia of desperate kings and dirty priests because people today are, have way more integrity than they did back then, right? He said, I'd totally fall for that poppycock. That's not the word he used. No further questions. Maybe a couple of earnest stories by gullible, generic people like us, that would totally do it, because anybody who actually believes in God has to be gullible and generic, right? Seriously, that's the best they've got? A little bit of ad hominem? Next one is actually pretty good. I like this one. He says, snap your fingers, turn my right pinky toenail into an infinite array of universes populated not by better and better looking versions of Selma Hayek, and then I'll believe in your God. And you've got to admit, that'd be pretty indisputable evidence, wouldn't it, right? Little anger behind the next one. He says, quite simple, really. I would ask this God to telephone me on my cell phone, which I don't use because I don't like phones. And I don't know what the number is, but God should because he's God, right? And make an appointment to visit me at my home during daylight hours. Daylight hours, that's important, I guess. I wanted to bring along my parents and grandparents and also those of my wife who died before I had a chance to meet them. 
And then I would certainly form some kind of a relationship with his cult. Holy cow. One more. This one's pretty funny. What would it be? God's existence, he says, a frontal lobotomy, which might straighten out the thinking of quite a few atheists in my mind. Now, it's amazing to me how many skeptics, atheists, position themselves as rational. As if they have personally examined the evidence for God against God, and they're only making a rational choice. As if all they're doing is following the science, unlike those of us who are gullible and needy, right? Bottom line, guys, I cannot prove to you that there is a God, and you cannot prove to me that there is not. But the evidence for God, the evidence for a God revealed in and through Jesus, is incredibly powerful. Either decision you make is going to require a leap of faith, but I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And here's the bottom line. Here's where we're going to go this morning. Most atheists are not atheists because they follow the evidence. Most atheists are atheists because they're following their hearts, not their heads. That's what we're going to unpack in a little bit. But right now, let's stand and give our God the honor and the praise that He deserves.
have a seat for a second. I know you probably need a breather. Whew. I will tell you this. As we sing about and we live this life that we've been talking about today, the world's going to notice. The world will notice when you can experience the goodness of God. The world will be able to see. If you don't look any different from the rest of the world, they'll never see it. They will remain in the darkness. It is our responsibility to be the light, to wear the name of Jesus Christ. And so because of what he has done all of, his, all of our lives, he's been faithful. Even when we really didn't follow him, even when we weren't faithful to him, he's always been faithful to us. Because of that, we will live this life. Even if you're not a singer, you'll live this life for him. The world will take notice. We stop every week to make sure that we celebrate something that happened. And it was terrible when it happened, but it becomes something wonderful that we get to celebrate when we come together. Jesus Christ died on a cross for our sins. The things that we did, what put him there, and his sacrifice is what gives us our hope, gives us our salvation, gives us our lives that we have now. All these lives that we've been talking about, singing about. We've seen this evidence in our lives and it's what Jesus Christ has done, what he's rescued us from. So we want to make sure that we take time out of every service and we remember that he's done those things. When we do this in our communion service, we take some bread and some juice. This way we are able to signify the, the body and the blood that were sacrificed for each of us. This place is your home and you want to be able to give. This is also that opportunity. When you go around to the tables, you'll see your communion elements, but you'll also see, also see the black boxes as your for your cheerful hearts. If you don't have one, just don't put anything in there. This is an act of worship that we give. And maybe you have something outside of your offering that you want to give to people in need in this community. White buckets that are at each of the stations are also there. I want to be thinking about him as we go to these tables. I don't want to be thinking about anything else. There's a lot of things that could be on your minds. Just let it go for just a few moments. Turn your attention to Jesus Christ and let him use you. Go ahead and stand. Let's go to the tables together.
This is the truth. When we follow after God, life just doesn't make much sense. It's simply not true that we have hope for life beyond this life. The choices we make now matter for eternity, that abundant life is found in following Jesus, that we were created to live in relationship to God. But before anything, you must know that hard work and caring for yourself is the way to survive. Many people I know have this philosophy. Believing in God is a crutch for weak-minded people. I refuse to believe under any circumstances that we can truly discover our destinies if we follow after God. Whether you believe it or not, this is the truth. You should know that I believe exactly the opposite. This is the truth. Whether you believe it or not, if we follow after God, we can truly discover our destinies. I refuse to believe under any circumstances that believing in God is a crutch for weak-minded people. Many people I know have this philosophy that hard work and caring for yourself is the way to survive. But before anything, you must know that we were created to live in relationship to God, that abundant life is found in following Jesus, that choices we make now matter for eternity. We have hope for life beyond this life. It's simply not true that life just doesn't make much sense when we follow after God. This is the truth. Now, some of you guys have heard this story before because I use it from time to time. Joe Sutherland was a professor of counseling at Emmanuel School of Religion, where I did my seminary about three years ago. That's humor. I remember he caught us by surprise with this. He said, when a student comes into my office and tells me that he's struggling with his faith, a student comes in and tells me that he's questioning his belief in God, he says, I always say something like this, so, struggling with your girlfriend? Huh, where'd that come from? And then he explained it to us like this. He says, when a Jesus follower wants to do something that he knows God won't approve of, he has to push God away somehow. I want to sleep with my girlfriend. God tells me to wait till marriage. Well, I'm not so sure about this God anymore. And I've watched it through the years. It's almost a given, not always, but almost, when you hear about a pastor or a strong Jesus follower who starts walking away from God, you can almost take it to the bank that he's doing something or he's wanting to do something that's offensive to God. So he's got to push God away. Simmons, the guy who wrote the book that some of you guys have been reading during this series, he puts it like this. He says, all philosophical problems are at the heart moral problems. It all comes down to how you intend to live your life. You buy that? You probably should. Blaise Pascal, he is one of the most, the smartest freshman in, Frenchman in history. He's a mathematician, physicist, philosopher, and theologian. He says that people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs not on the basis of proof, not on the basis of evidence, not on the basis of reason, but on the basis of what they find attractive. We usually believe what we want to believe. One side of us claims we want the truth. The other side pushes back when the truth takes us in a direction we don't want to go. It's kind of like Pascal leans forward and looks at you with those piercing eyes and he yells at you, 
You can't handle the truth. So you just believe what you want, right? Whatever's going to make you feel good. And I know this is going to sound kind of mean. Well, most people are not searching for truth. Most people are searching for happiness or pleasure or for whatever else will support what they want to do. Most people are not driven by their reason. They're driven by their emotions, their appetites, and their feelings. Now, I know we Jesus followers are accused of doing exactly the same. A guy named Sigmund Freud, we've talked about him a lot in this series. He was an atheist. According to Freud, religion, believing in God, is nothing more than what he calls wish fulfillment. It's what we want to believe. We want a God who can forgive our sins. We want a super powerful father figure up there in the sky who looks after us. So religion is a kind of neurosis. It's an illusion. It's our futile attempt to deal with a scary world. And wouldn't it be nice, he says, if there was this good God in the sky who wants people to be good to us and who has your back and who offers you this life after death. We want that kind of a God, so we create him, he says. But think about it. If you're going to invent a God, would you invent one like we believe in? A God who can be really scary, who demands our holiness? If you're going to invent a God... Would you ever come up with a guy like Jesus? Kind of amuses me that skeptics who poke at us because my kind of God would never allow evil or allow such pain are the ones who are accusing us of creating our kind of God. But if we had invented God, wouldn't we have invented one more gentle, more docile, more loving, and more grandfatherly? But let me get back to the ridiculous idea that when people push God away, they're just following the science, right? Darwin. Now, technically, Darwin was not an actual atheist. He was practically an atheist. Believe it or not, it wasn't the idea of evolution that caused him to push God away. He hated the doctrine of hell. And he hated it, got angry with God when his 10-year-old daughter died. He wasn't following the science away from God. He was following his heart Aldous Huxley, one of the most famous atheists of the last generation. Here's what Huxley said. He said, I wanted to believe the Darwinian idea. I chose to believe it, not because there was enormous evidence for it, nor because it gave the full authority to give interpretation of my origins. I chose to believe it because it delivered me from trying to find meaning, and it freed me to my own erotic passions. Holy cow. An honest man. Augustine, one of the most famous Christian thinkers in history, he did not start out as a Christian. Augustine resisted God for a long time. You know why? Because he liked sex. And his arguments against God were a smokescreen. He says, the plain fact was, I thought I'd be impossibly miserable without the embraces of a mistress. <laughs> Another honest man. Mortimer Adler. Don't you love that name, Mortimer? One of you guys needs to name your kid Mortimer. One of the greatest philosophical thinkers of the last century, authored over 50 books. For most of his life, he described himself as a pagan until the age of 82. Stunned his friends. He said that he'd often been intrigued by Christianity, but he never took the leap of faith till the age of 82. You know why he resisted so long, he says? 
It's not because there was no evidence for God. It was because he wanted to be free to live life the way he wanted to instead of God's way. And here's what he wrote. He said, the decision to become a Christian lies in the state of one's heart, his will, not in the state of one's mind. Hmm. So they're not skeptics because they have examined the evidence and they're being all rational-like. Skeptics because they don't want to bend their knees to God. So they look for whatever smart-sounding reason they can latch on to to push God away. Paul Vitz, prominent psychologist, researcher, studies exactly this stuff. He was an atheist until his 30s. And here's what he wrote. And this one resonates with me because I faced exactly the same battles at Emory when I was working on my PhD. C.S. Lewis faced exactly the same pressures at Oxford and at Cambridge. Vitz says, the major reason for me wanting to become an atheist was that I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be accepted, peer pressure. I wanted to be accepted by the powerful and influential psychologists in my field. In particular, he says, I wanted to be accepted by my professors in grad school. My professors at Stanford, he says, as much as they might disagree on psychological theory, they were, as far as I could tell, united on just two things, their intense personal ambition and their rejection of religion. And so in this environment, he said, just like I learned to dress like a college student by putting on the right clothes, I learned to think like a proper psychologist by putting on the right atheistic, skeptical ideas and attitudes. It was not about the evidence, he says. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be accepted, peer pressure. Because sometimes we fear the rejection of men way more than we fear the rejection of God. David Brooks, who writes for the New York Times, explains the pressure like this. He says, the hard part of the intellectual life is separating what is true from what will get you light. It's not about following the science. Francis Collins is one of the leading scientists in our country today, just stepped down as the director of the National Institutes for Health last December, started out as an atheist. He began to wonder, honestly, whether his atheism was chosen because of reason or because it was the answer he wanted. And he was honest enough to actually dig in and examine the evidence because he's a scientist. Based on the preponderance of the evidence, he determined he believed in God. He does exist. And Jesus really is the Son of God. And then he says, most of the religious skeptics he knew were just like he was. Had never really examined the evidence and never really wanted to. Because, guys, the evidence points to God. It really does. Now, for the longest time, I used to think that C.S. Lewis was the exception. I thought that he was an atheist for a long time because he just simply couldn't get to God intellectually. But I was wrong. As a young atheist, Lewis was surprised to discover that a very close friend of his, a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, Ever heard that name, Lord of the Rings? You learned that Tolkien not only believed in God, he was actually a Jesus follower. How'd that happen? So C.S. Lewis was honest enough to start to dig himself and he began to find that his intellect was drawn to God, but his heart was resistant. His mind was drawn to what he recognized to be true, but his heart pushed back. 
because believing in God wouldn't give him the moral freedom that his atheism gave him. So C.S. Lewis pushed back against God for a while because he believed that Jesus would get in his way. (laughs) And he was right. Jesus does get in our way. In fact, he flat out takes over. He just doesn't make your life worse. To be honest, when I hear that some kid has become an atheist, I kind of chuckle. It's a fad, and I doubt they have really examined any of the evidence yet, thought it through. When I hear that some more mature Jesus follower has become an atheist, I shake my head because my suspicion is that he wants to do something that God doesn't like. So he'll search until he finds an excuse, a rationalization, a justification for marginalizing God. And it's easy to find, because the way our internet works, if you're looking for a reason to be an atheist, you're going to find a boatload of people who will help you, right? People who followed a similar path. See, guys, God created us, God wired us to believe in Him. And God has left His fingerprints all over this creation. But God will not force you. He won't force you. A guy named Rice Brooks goes around different colleges, universities, making the case for God. In fact, we're using one of his books as kind of background for this series. It's called God's Not Dead, Evidence for God in an Age of Uncertainty. I I went up to U of L and listened to him speak, pretty sharp guy. He says, I've been challenged repeatedly on university campuses. They're going to say, you're going to have to prove to me that God exists. You have to prove to me that Christianity is true. He says, my response is, if I do, will you believe? And will you follow Christ? And when they say no, he says, then your problem is not a lack of information. If you have all your questions answered and still don't believe, then the real problem is emotional, not intellectual. And it almost always is. Guys, if you go to the time of the New Testament, you can see that it's in the way that people responded to Jesus. Scene one, three scenes very quickly. Scene one, Gospel of John, chapter 11. Jesus does this blow-your-socks-off miracle, right? And the miracle that he performs is not disputed by his enemies. This guy, Lazarus, has been dead. He's been in a tomb for four days. Jesus tells him to come out, and Lazarus comes out. Some of the Jews saw what Jesus had done, and they became Jesus followers. No kidding. Others, John says, went to the Pharisees. They told the Pharisees what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and the Pharisees called a high council together and said, what are we going to do? This guy performs many miraculous signs. They didn't dispute that he was working miracles. But they said, if we allow him to go on like this, soon everybody's going to believe in him. And then the Roman army is going to come in and they're going to destroy our temple and they're going to destroy our nation. You see, Jesus was a threat He was a threat to their religion, a threat to their power, a threat to their way of life. So verse 53, from that day on they plotted to kill Jesus. Holy cow. He raises the dead and they want to kill him. Probably not guessing that he's probably going to walk out of his own tomb too, right? They didn't want to believe. And that's still how so many people are. They don't want to believe. And if you don't want to believe, God will let you find a reason not to. Next chapter, chapter 12. John keeps on doing Jesus stuff. So powerful. 
Some of the leaders wanted to believe in him. Some of the leaders kind of believed in him. Some of the leaders wussily believed in him. That's my word, wussily. You like that? To believe in a wussy way. Anyway, John says, many people did believe in him, including some of the leaders, but they wouldn't admit it for fear that the Pharisees would expel them from the synagogues because they loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. And that's still how a lot of people are. They kind of believe, but they keep their faith hidden because they don't want to be dissed, they don't want to be mocked, they don't want to be canceled. And guys, that kind of faith isn't going to cut it. I think one of the scariest scenes in the whole Bible is in Mark chapter 3. Jesus is doing these miracles, and it's clear they're real, and some of Jesus' enemies want to discredit him to expose him. They hate the attention he's getting. So they say, yeah, he's doing miracles, but he's not doing them with the power of God. We think maybe Jesus is possessed. We think maybe Jesus is possessed by Satan. We think he's a tool of Satan. He's going to lead you to hell, not heaven. Jesus calls him out. In fact, with some of the scariest words in the Bible, he says, I tell you the truth, all sin, all sin, even blasphemy can be forgiven, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. It's a sin with eternal consequences. Holy cow. It's unforgivable. You know why? Here it is in the message. Jesus has listened to this carefully. I'm warning you. There is nothing done, there's nothing said that cannot be forgiven. Nothing, guys. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. You can be forgiven by God. But if you persist in your slanders against God's Holy Spirit, if you persist in resisting the nudges of God's Holy Spirit, if you keep pushing the Spirit of God away, you're repudiating the only one who can forgive you. You're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting. You're severing, he says, by your own perversity, all connection with the only one who can forgive you. Listen, guys. If there really is a God, and if Jesus really is the Son of God, and if the Holy Spirit is actually in this room and in this world nudging people towards God, which is what Jesus teaches, if Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to the Father without going through Him, which is what Jesus said, then the only unforgivable sin is the refusal to bend your knees to the only one through whom eternal life is possible. Jesus says when the Holy Spirit comes, and He's here, guys, you felt Him. When the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world of its sin, He's going to convict the world of God's rightness, and He's going to convict the world of God's coming judgment. And you've felt all three of those, so have I. I have felt God's conviction of my sin. I have felt God's conviction of His rightness. And I have felt God's conviction that something is coming where I'm going to stand before God. So have you. And the most important question you're ever going to answer in this life is this. Does he exist? Is there really a God? A big G God, not a little G God, the kind that we mess with. Is there a God who is infinitely powerful, infinitely smart, infinitely holy, infinitely just, yet infinitely loving, who actually cares how we live? Is he actually the God who's revealed to us in and through Jesus? And guys, there are two options, right? They're mutually exclusive. And you're going to have to make one of those choices. Because if you try not to choose, you're choosing against him. He either exists or he doesn't. 
And the choice you make is going to take you down one of two very different paths. And every single one of us is betting our eternity on our answer to that question. But even knowing that, we still push back against choosing God. You know why? Because we are really, really stubborn critters. We really are. Because the essence of following Jesus is admitting this. It's not about me anymore. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I like. It's not about what I feel. There's a God, and I'm going to let God be God now. It's, it's about doing life with Him, for Him, His way. It's about doing it when I understand Him and when I don't. It's about doing it His way when I agree with Him and when I don't, because He's God. And I'm pretty sure my God is smarter than me wiser than me, better than me, and I'm pretty sure God loves me and wants my best, which is pretty much what Jesus was all about, right? So I'm going to trust Him. But it's hard for us rebellious critters to trust God. No one's the boss of me, not even God. You can't tell me what's right for me. You can't tell me what's wrong for me. You can't tell me what's best for me. Not even God. You don't buy that, that we're rebellious that way? Ask any two-year-old, right? My kids were two once. My grandkids have been two fairly recently. Tell them no, and they're going to look you right in the eye, and they're going to do it anyway. That's our nature. When you get a little bit older, pretty much the same. My preaching partner, Randy, puts it like this. He put one of his kids in timeout, right? Made him sit in the corner. Said his turn, kid turned around and looked at him with tears streaming down his face, and he says, I may be sitting here on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> Which describes how we are. We never quite outgrow that belligerence. So even when we do get ruthlessly honest enough to admit that there's a boatload of evidence for God, most of us still say, I still don't want a God. So I'll find a reason to push him away. And God lets us. God won't force himself on us. Because love can't be forced. And God wants us to love him back. So here it is, guys. We've been unpacking what I think are powerful evidences for God for about three months now. Think about it. Do you actually think this universe that you're part of created itself out of nothing? Seriously. Or do you think it's more credible that an eternal, transcendent, omnipotent God got it started? He created the world out of nothing. If God created the world out of nothing, that's a miracle. If the universe created itself out of nothing, that's superstitious magic. And then how did all that matter and energy end up looking like this? Cosmologists who study this test stuff tell us that the odds against an explosion of matter and energy coalescing into this universe as we know it without a designer is astoundingly astronomical. Really? The odds against you evolving from a primordial soup to who you are without a designer, that is unbelievably astronomical. Without a god, <laughs> superstitious magic. With a God, it's simply a miracle, which gods can do. And people are going to tell you, how can there be a God with so much evil in the world? And then you've got to look them in the eye and say, well, how can you explain this? How do you get any sense of evil at all unless there's a God? 
You didn't get that from nature. Where did you get any notion of morality if there's no God? You've all got some kind of a moral system. You all experience some kind of moral outrage. How do you justify any moral outrage at all if there is no God? Or think of it this way. If there is no God, then a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Just animals. You are worth no more than the fly that you swat. But you sense you're more than that. You sense that the people around you are more than that, which is why things like generosity and compassion and respect are important to you. You can't explain those notions without a God. Or do you understand, without a God, there is no meaning. There's no purpose. You're just an accident, and so is everyone else. But you sense that there's a purpose. That sense of a purpose is a fingerprint of God, guys. So many other fingerprints of God. How do you explain love without God? You can explain some kinds of love, sexual love, friendship love, mother love. But how do you explain an agape love, that selfless, unconditional, sacrificial love that you long for? How do you explain that if there's no God? Beauty. You were created by God with the capacity to create beauty and to enjoy beauty. You cannot explain those capacities evolutionarily. It's a fingerprint of God. The way we Jesus followers face death, fingerprint of God. The obsession that you have with finding happiness, an obsession that cannot be satisfied by the kinds of happiness that we pursue, there's a God-sized hole in your heart that cannot be filled by anything except God. And the joy that you experience when you actually let Him take His rightful place in your heart is a fingerprint of God. Guys, we've been talking about this stuff for about three months. If you want to catch up, you can go to our website, you can go to our YouTube page, but listen. I suspect that there are some people who are listening and they're kind of like, I get it, you're probably right. But you still haven't bent your knees to God. You still haven't accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. And I understand that these sermons might not convince you, but do you understand that that's not my job? My job's to lay out the evidence. It's the Holy Spirit's job to convince you, and I suspect He's been working on you. I suspect you felt His nudges. He's good at it. So it's time. Because the longer you put it off, the harder it is to do the right thing. Next week is Easter. It's the day we're going to celebrate the single most important event in all of human history, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm telling you guys, talk about evidences for God. If Jesus walked out of that tomb, guys, the debate's over. And when he walked out of that tomb, he didn't just defeat death for himself. He defeated death and sin for you and for me. Resurrection Sunday. The most important day in history for every single man, woman, and child everywhere for all of time. So, how about making Easter the time when you finally give in to God? The day your life begins to change forever. Next week, Easter Sunday, we've already got about four or five baptisms scheduled. Isn't that cool? We're going to symbolize on the outside what God is doing on the inside. We're going to plunge them under the water because that water is going to symbolize the cleansing of the whole person, every sin that separates us from God. And by putting them under that water, we're going to be kind of like burying them, burying the old. When they come out of that water, it's kind of like rising up brand new in God's eyes, which is the only 
set of eyes that matter. Water's not going to save them. It's just going to symbolize on the outside what God's going to be doing on the inside whenever we accept Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. So if you haven't gotten it done, why not now? Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Keep your eyes closed if you don't mind. How many of you guys have already accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? He's your Savior and your Lord right now. Would you raise your hands, please? That is so cool. The word I have for you guys is this. Live like it or I'll bury you alive in a box. Now, how many of you guys believe that eh, there probably is a God, and Jesus probably is the Son of God, but you haven't bent your knees to Him yet? accepting Him as your Savior and your Lord. Would you please raise your hands? No one's going to see. Would you raise your hands? Thank you for your honesty. Now, how many of you who have not accepted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord are ready to get it done? Would you raise your hands? Would you tell God that? In your own way, I want to accept Jesus as my Lord and my Savior. I want to do life with God, for God, God's way. Would you tell him that right here, right now? Now, if you would open your eyes, look up here, please. If you told God that you're going to accept Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you're not done. You're just getting started. You need to confess that he's your Lord before men. He tells us to do that. You need to get baptized. He tells us to do that, too. So we need to talk. So right after this worship service, seriously, right after this worship service, and you're leaving, you head out and you look left, you'll see the connection room in our foyer. We need to talk about how to get started as a Jesus follower. We need to talk about your baptism, which I hope we can do as early as next week. Don't put it off. You know why? How many things do you put off and it just becomes one of those projects you never get done? Don't let this be one of them. Let's get it done. What better time during Easter season, Resurrection Day. Let's stand and worship the God we love.
Okay. All right. First of all, I want to introduce you guys. This is uh, my good friend, Brendan Smith. And Brendan's come today uh, desiring to uh, just acknowledge uh, his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and to be uh, immersed into Christ here today. And so uh, he wanted to be sure and celebrate this moment with all of you. Um, there's a real quick story that I want to tell you about Brendan, about how this discussion came about. Again, I encourage you to get to know this young man because I guarantee you will be blessed. Um, but one day he and his mom were, um, they were getting ready to leave. Uh, the capable service was over and they were leaving. And there was a baptism going on in here. And they looked up on the monitor and, and he asked his mom, he said, what's, what's going on here? And his mom says, well, that young lady's being baptized. And, and he says, well, what's, you know, kind of, what's that about? And so she started, you know, kind of explaining to him. And he says, well, something about whether he had been baptized. She said, well, when you were a baby, she said, in the church that we were in, said, you know, what we did is we, we, we baptized, we sprinkled you. And she said, basically, that was my commitment to raise you in a godly home. And, um, and so after a pause, we'll say, he looked at his mom and he says, well, I think it's time for me to make my own commitment. Which is, uh, excuse me, excuse me, who's ever charging the lights? Can we turn okay. that bright one off? Okay. We're going to get done here. How about that? So, Brandon, what I'm going to ask you to do, and we talked about this earlier, okay, I'm going to ask you just to make that confession that we do, that, that you, uh, and this was um, the confession that, that Peter made when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? So, if you Sorry. would just say it with me. I believe... I believe that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Christ. The Son of the Living God. The Son of the Living God. Okay. Brendan Michael Smith. Yes. Because of your uh, confession here today that you do indeed believe that Jesus is the Christ, it is my privilege now to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sin and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as you accept him, Jesus, today as your personal Lord and Savior. So we're going to be talking about linchpins in this next part of our God Canceled series. And there's all different kinds of linchpins that we use here on a, on a farm. You've got hitches like this you've got to put on a, on a truck and it'll use one linchpin to attach it to the truck, another one to make sure that it, is, that it is secure. You might use a linchpin like one of these to put an implement to a tractor or to a truck. You've got these little snap ring linchpins. You've got even cotter pins, which is a kind of linchpin. So linchpins are really, really important to us. And uh, So guys, what exactly is a linchpin according to the dictionary? Well, in the dictionary, it's something that holds the various elements of a complicated structure together. But the word is also used metaphorically. The most important member of a group or a part of a system, the part that holds all the other members or parts together and makes it possible for them to operate as they were intended. And it's metaphorically used like this. A linchpin is a person or a thing that is the most important part of a group or a system's operation. In other words, a linchpin is Jesus. You see, guys, we've been looking at all these incredibly powerful evidences that there is a God. 
And then there's this Jesus, a man who claimed to be way more than just a man, and a, and a guy who did things that a mere man just simply cannot do. And then there's this event, not an idea, but an event. They claim Jesus raised from the dead. And guys, the evidence is, it's absolutely overwhelming. Now some guys cheat and they scoff because it was an extraordinary miracle. And guys, if there is no God, then go ahead and scoff. But if there is a God and the evidence for God is powerful, then the idea of rejecting the possibility of a miracle is irrational. The real question is, did the resurrection happen or not? And if it did, it's conclusive evidence for God. Case is closed. And if it did happen, it's conclusive evidence for Jesus as the Son of God. Case closed. And guys, that's where we're going next week, Easter. So I want to ask the question, is the evidence compelling enough for you to come back next week with another person? That's a really important question. If it really is true, why in the world would we not go out there and make sure that the world knows it, okay? So we're going to make sure that when you come back next week, you know, when we do that next week, we're going to be remembering three things, if you guys recall, right? So it is come early, park far, bring one. Everybody say that with me. Ready? Come early, park far, bring one. And so whatever that means, you know, for you, if it means you come back early at 8 o'clock or 930, that's totally cool. Definitely want to make sure that you're, you don't have to, by the way. Uh, make sure that you park far as well. Again, you don't have to, but it'd be really helpful, especially for people who don't typically come here. There's going to be a lot of them next week. So make sure that you park far away and, you know, bust yourself in, you know, have, have friends that will you know, carry you on their back or something, something that will allow them to get here where you need to, but a little bit further away. And then finally, bring one or two or six or 25, whatever it is that you need to do to get out there this work, because the evidence truly is that compelling. What Jesus Christ has done for us has changed each of us. We believe that he is good. We believe that he has done that. We don't want anyone to die without the Lord. We want that to be on your hearts through this week. And you're like, wow, that seems pretty morbid. We don't. We don't want anyone to, to live this life without him. So make sure that you understand that and you live uh, according to that through this week. And make sure that you come back next week too. Let's pray. We'll send you away. God, we are so appreciative of the gifts that you give to us. And it's not just that you, you give us things that we need. Father, you truly have given us life. You've given us health. You've given us hope. You've given us a purpose. You have given us something um, that this world cannot give to us. And because of that, Father, I want to be able to give you my life in return. Father, I want to make sure that the time that I have on this earth is devoted to making sure that the world knows that you have changed me. You've given me everything that I need. God, thank you so much for every person in here and every family that's represented, every place that, that they live and every place that they work, Father, that can change this world by being a light in the darkness. Father, let that be a, a conviction that we have when we leave this place. It's not just something that we talk about when we come in here together, but outside of this place, help them to be able to see that you have anointed them and that your spirit is in within them to do amazing things in your name for your glory. Father, thank you so much. It's in Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Hope to see you again next week. Bye-bye.